Dining with friends, dining with you. VegCast. All that and more on VegCast 62. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, here we are coming right back at you with that podcast that we had in preparation when we had to jump right in and get that Michael Greger edition out. This week, however, we are talking with Priscilla Farrell of Friends of Animals, a legendary animal organization. Uh, If you've ever had a pet and sought Friends of Animals help to get that pet spayed or neutered, you know what I'm talking about. But of course, Friends of Animals is so much more. And in fact, we are uh, the hook for this is a new cookbook from uh, Friends of Animals. Uh, Priscilla Farrell was the uh, co-author with Lee Hall of Dining with Friends, uh, the first cookbook from Friends of Animals, and now they have a new one out called The Best of Vegan Cooking. We're going to drop in on an event, a, a signing at Sutau Restaurant, uh, Sutau Cafe out in uh, Malvern, PA, and talk to Priscilla about the book as well as uh, some of Friends of Animals' other efforts. And uh, we'll also, of course, have some music for you. Uh, This is a new-to-VegCast band by the name of Lagoon. And there will be a science fact, as you might expect. Uh, This one about what kinds of food are actually healthy for your heart. So please sit back, relax, and crank up that MP3 player as we deliver to you this 60-second edition of Veg. You know, I mentioned pets, or if you like, companion animals uh, right there at the outset, and I wanted to spotlight one uh, before we get into our interview uh, that is kind of interesting. In England, uh, there appears to be, uh, if you can trust the Daily Telegraph, there appears to be a cat who has gone vegan. Um, a cat that uh, eschews meat, fish, uh, chicken, etc., but likes to dine on uh, veggies and fruits. And it's just a bizarre kind of story because, uh, you know, cats, they are obligate carnivores. I mean, dogs is one thing, but cats, uh, it's bizarre that a cat would either make such a decision or have such a constitution that uh, that it would just uh, behave this way. And uh, it reminded me of two separate things. Uh, one is a book called Martin's Mice by Dick King Smith, uh, whom you may know as the author of Babe, uh, about a cat who does uh, decide to go vegetarian. Uh, it's kind of a pacifist cat who doesn't want to uh, catch mice because mice are his friends. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of the fantasy aspect of it. But um, there's also, in, in real terms, I would have to say I happen to have a cat who, you know, she will put up with the cat food that we give her. But there's one thing that she just goes wild for, and it's cantaloupe, uh, which is not a, a food that you would think that cats in the wild <laughs> would be known for uh, hunting down and uh, consuming, but she just loves cantaloupe. We have to, if we have cantaloupe out, she'll she will do anything to try to get onto the table and get some of it. And you know, we'll give her little 
tiny bits and have to really monitor her consumption and cut her off when we feel like she's had uh, too much cantaloupe. And uh, the third thing of these two that I was going to mention is in, uh, in Mark Twain's Roughing It. This is from uh, some 150 years previous. There is an anecdote about a guy who bets that, uh, that he has a cat that eats watermelon, and uh, they, they scoff, and the guy brings the cat out, and it, it uh, wolfs down watermelon, which is uh, kind of similar to cantaloupe in some ways. I mean, they're both a melon. So I'm just wondering, is there some aspect of cats and their eating preferences that we just have never really uh, plumbed thoroughly because we've assumed that cats just want to eat meat. Maybe even obligate carnivores uh, have some kind of predilection toward uh, diversifying their diet. So uh, this is not really a science story, so I couldn't uh, put it in a science fact because, as you know, those science facts are nothing but wall-to-wall science. So, um, no, I mean, actually, they all have to be based on peer-reviewed studies, whereas this is a, a story in a newspaper, and I I don't know if if we can trust every single uh, detail of it, but we will keep monitoring that and bring you any breaking developments in uh, the story of the vegetarian cat. But now let us take a trip to Malvern, Pennsylvania uh, and visit Sioux Tao Cafe. Okay, we're right here at Sioux Tao Restaurant with Priscilla Farrell. Priscilla, welcome to VegCast. Thanks so much. Priscilla is, of course, the president of Friends of Animals and the author of The Best of Vegan Cooking. Is that right? Thank you, yes. And you also were the uh, the co-author with Lee Hall of the first Friends of Animals cookbook, mm-hmm. uh, Dining with Friends. Yes. Is that it? So we're here... Uh, for one thing, this is an event to celebrate the, the publication of this cookbook, so let's start with that. What, How did this cookbook in particular come about, and what is the, the concept of Friends of Animals, which people don't think of as necessarily a cookbook organization putting out cookbooks in the first place? Well, that's very true, um, because the, the cookbook and the cooking and the high standards for vegan cooking really come from me. So, as a principal to Friends of Animals, um, I'm one of these uh, frustrated cookbook authors. You know, I've worked at Friends of Animals since 1974, um, became president in 87. Um, I do a lot of cooking at home and for holidays, and I always had a cookbook in me. But I really uh, unloaded everything I had and from my great-grandmothers and the family recipes um, in the first cookbook, Dining with Friends, in 2005. And the new cookbook came together about the concept for it about a year ago when my daughter um, found out she had a weed allergy. And I was kind of stimulated to find food that we could use at holidays and when she brought friends home, whatever, that were, you know, was vegan, the food was vegan, and it was also wheatless. And I created a cauliflower risotto, and I decided it was probably, you know, a stimulus for an entire cookbook. I thought the cauliflower risotto was so outstanding, I should do a a chapter on risottos, show vegans that there's a formula for creating them, that they can do one that is as good as anything they uh, find in a restaurant. It'll be gourmet, it'll be easy to follow, 
In other words, you learn what the process is. You just keep knocking them off. And um, after that, uh, my daughter and I went to Venice. That was last May for her 25th birthday. And we ate at Harry's Bar and Grill, some supposedly famous place that Ernest Hemingway had a... Yeah, in Venice, had a table. Venice, Italy, not Venice, Venice California. Venice, Italy. Okay. The picture in the back of the cookbook was taken in Venice. Jane is a... My daughter is a photographer. And we had a... a uh, asparagus and spring pea risotto and I had the the wait staff tell the chef to please of course not use butter use olive oil right. of course no cheese and uh, vegetable broth because typically risottos are put together with chicken broth and it was a beautiful looking risotto we did a picture for the cookbook you know of it and that got ex- started expanding my cooking again. In other words, I hadn't learned a lot of new things in years. I could do a lot of cooking, but I hadn't necessarily learned uh, some new ways of cooking. And I was forced to do that with a cookbook, so I got to be a better cook. And my goal was really to show people that you don't have to sacrifice anything to be vegan. It's not a matter of giving up. You can have... The food can be luxurious and sensual, and you, it can be as beautiful and um, exciting as, as you want it to be. Some of this depends on your ability to learn how to cook. Well, okay. And, and I think I'm living in a culture now where a lot of people have big, beautiful kitchens, you know, islands, oh, yeah. uh, dishwashers to die for, and the parents don't cook. I mean, that's how I, I raised my child in such a community where all the kids came over for food at our house. And these were kids, many of them be, that became vegetarian, but they all told me they had never had a soup from scratch before. Um, I never bought a cookie. You know, I still don't. Cookies are made. And I don't think everybody has to live that way. But you have to, know, you have, to have a good palate. Um, good cooks have good palates, right? Okay. You have to know if somebody has a sodium problem diet, how to infuse that food with flavor that doesn't come from salt. There are things you have to learn. My old cooking teacher told me if I could read, I could cook. I agree with that. Okay. And, and I think that this cookbook and the first one are accessible to people, even like my daughter who refused to learn how to cook for a long time, who then needed to make a birthday cake and made the chocolate liberation birthday cake for somebody's grandfather and decorated it with raspberries. And you know what? It turned out beautifully. And it was a three-layer cake, and it was a first try. And she just took the cookbook, opened it up, had, you know, cookware from our kitchen and a a somewhat reliable oven, because I have a decent oven, and turned the thing out. That's what I think these cookbooks should be. I think they should be full of photographs to show you what good food can look like. Your eye is important, right? And um, it should be a cookbook that pretty much the, the ingredients are somewhat simple, not complicated food, and that... Uh, people can serve inside of sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes you're going to go longer and do something for holidays, but reliable recipes that have been decently proofread <laughs> and that you can follow. Right. And what I've 
discovered from owning a lot of cookbooks is that especially vegetarian ones tend to look kind of bland. You know, the money isn't put into the photography or to the illustration. And I wanted to do that so that people um, wanted to cook these recipes. Okay, well let's just uh, zoom out a little bit now you've explained about this cookbook and how it supports uh, the concept that veganism doesn't have to be something bland or difficult, but how does that fit into Friends of Animals' mission and what, if people are not already familiar with Friends of Animals, what is that mission? Um, when I started Friends of Animals, I understood mostly that our mission was to uh, advance a cause, a social justice cause for animals, particularly wild animals, free living animals, deer and coyotes and seals and wolves and polar bears and squirrels and animals like that. And after the um, a few decades of working at the organization, we put out the first factory farming pamphlet uh, that had been produced in 19 between 1974 and 76. And just to be clear, you were telling me before that the organization started in the late 50s. In 57. 57. And then you joined in 70... In 74. Okay. And I joined at a time when we had ignited an anti-fur movement. We were making arguments against shooting deer, clubbing seals. You know, there were a number of, of causes like that. Um, we had a... a spay-neuter program for dogs and cats that was nationwide and, and still is, but the idea of seeing animals as food, that hadn't been challenged. And I was not aware, now I wasn't plugged in, to a ve I was vegetarian, I started in 1974, I wasn't vegan until 92, but I wasn't plugged into a vegetarian movement. I wasn't really aware of it. I would have appreciated it, you know, and I had emotional reasons why I didn't want to dine on animals. But the organization didn't really take up the cause for animals that were called food until the mid-1970s. Um, by the time I became vegan in 92, I saw that I should have been vegan a lot earlier if I had had the right kind of inspiration. You know, if I had listened, if a group had reached me that I thought made sense as a group, that hadn't happened until 92. Um, well, what happened, let me just ask, what happened, who reached you, how did that happen that, for you? Well, it, it was personal in that I was getting a divorce, and I met someone that um, I married, okay. you know, a year later, who I still work with at, at Friends of Animals, uh -huh. and he was vegan. So it was the ability to start my life over again and to have a partner in the, in the quest. And this individual came from an Italian family that um, relished food. I came not from an Italian family, but one where all the women who had strength and were thought of as having, um, could make an artistic contribution, made it through either gardening, and uh, gardening for vegetables and fruits was high on that list, or uh, through cooking. So I was in the kitchen as a little kid, you know, with my grandmother making donuts in the morning, making bread. All of the, the grapes we grew were turned into jellies and what have you. We canned peaches. We, we would put up all the fruit and vegetables for the winter. And I learned self-esteem in a kitchen. I learned what 
food, how to prepare it, how to labor over it, how to create dialogue, you know, with other women um, while we're producing it. And we were admired in a family, you know, for that ability. I didn't see it as domestic work for females. I saw it as something that if you were gifted enough to be able to execute, it was um, a way of loving other people. So these cookbooks were cookbooks that I wanted to do from a personal um, standpoint because I wanted to show people who needed to learn how to cook or who already could cook that standards can be high and yet you can execute the recipes and, and make good food. And I think giving people the skills and the incentive to do that is going to build a vegan movement. Okay. You know, you can't feel as though the, the food is bland or, or a deprivation and be motivated to um, enlist more people. Okay. Um, let me ask one more question before we run out of time uh, about one of the initiatives that's important to our local audience. Um, and it has to do with Valley Forge Park and the deer. And can, I know it's a complex issue, but can you just... Uh, it seems like to some vegetarians a counterintuitive uh, position to take that, uh, you know, a long-time solution to be advocated was contraception for the deer, and you're arguing against that. So what's, can you give us a quick summary of that? I mean, I, I would be an advocate of contraception for the homo sapien, you know, <laughs> here and everywhere, because yeah. a, as, a, as a species, if there's one overpopulated animal on Earth, it's the human one. You know, so I am all in favor of family planning for, for the homo sapien. This is an area, you know, I grew up in. In the, in the 50s, um, and I came back to school in, in the 1960s at a boarding school in Newtown Square, and I can tell you the population here, it, you know, the, it's a beautiful area, but the population is going through the roof and carving up a lot of land mm -hmm. in the conquest. Right. You've got out-of-scale houses, you know, that kind of dominate property where there used to be a lot of open space. Sure. So what is left, if you look at Valley Forge, which you know, used to be a beautiful, quaint, demure, kind of wooded area with historical replicas of things. Now you've got something that, to me, looks kind of like a theme park of sorts. What's left that seems like it relates to nature and includes nature are little patches of woody areas seem to be on the periphery. You know, the internal map is strange with highways running all around it and through it, but the deer cling to those little wooded areas. And I saw maybe a few dozen going through in the daylight, and they look, they're, they're uh, gracing the landscape, their presence there. The idea that a public hunt is desirable. I get that in a big hunting state like Pennsylvania. It's true. This is you're, there are a million hunters here, yeah. but they shouldn't get everything they demand. And right. this is a national park that ought to provide some peace to the animals who who still dare to try to live around us. And they have been squeezed out of of so many areas. You know, why can't we extend them?
some respect, get some pleasure from seeing them when we can, and not come up with all these cockamamie reasons why they ought to either be subject to a birth control plan or to a hunting scheme. Okay, but let me just play devil's advocate here. If if the people in charge, the people who get to you know say what's going to happen, say they're they're either going to be hunted or it's going to be contraception. I mean, doesn't that then put you in a position of saying, okay, we'd rather have them hunted than be monkeying we, we'd with their rather, population? We'd I mean, rather, is that what you're saying? What we're saying is we'd rather sue you, and okay. that's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to sue them. And we've got the brightest, most dedicated lawyers that live here. Um, Lee Hall is our legal director, Liz and Devin. Lee is connected with a, a group of lawyers here in the Philadelphia area who are all volunteering their time, and we're putting together a lawsuit. We're going to get ready in case they announce their very bad plan. And what we expect is that the uh, Park Service, under the, the auspices of the Department of Interior, will be sued. Okay. So, in addition to that, are there going to be protests? I'm sure, and the volume is going to get high. You know, these were arguments crafted by attorneys who are um, uh, psychologically and emotionally involved with trying to do the right thing here. And I think that um, there's already some momentum. People have been educated in a different way. You know, that it's not a matter of hands on the deer. We're to take our hands off. The deer, you know, have, have been um, sacrificed enough. You know, there isn't a lot of space left where they can just try to eke out their own lives. And the idea that we want to go in and, and manipulate their populations or, or shoot them to death for what? An ornamental plant that's going to be plopped where? You know, you've got awful lot of grass in Valley Forge, tremendous amount of grass, lots of sidewalks and areas for running or taking a dog. Um, not a lot of trees. They seem to have pretty much wiped out, you know, the wooded areas so that you have massive amounts of open space. Nobody needs to stick an azalea bush somewhere that will be regarded as a lollipop for a, a deer. And if you're setting up that kind of scenario, it seems kind of self-defeating anyway. Okay. I'm saying they've ruined that park enough. And if they dare to harm the deer, to touch them in any way, we're going to sue them. All right, great. Well, we will keep tabs on what happens with that and report to our VegCast listeners. But before we go, you have two cookbooks out. Is there? Can you uh, give us any sense of what's in the offing for Friends of Animals in terms of either more cookbooks or more initiatives to to get the word out in different uh, kind of new and creative ways? Um, I'm hoping to uh, stay alive in the next year. You That'd know, be good. It, it, it's such a, a <laughs> It's such a harrowing economy yeah. that, you know, we've had some people laid off at, at Friends of Animals. Some of us are doing double the work we were doing before. Um, and I'm just hoping that this nonprofit can survive this harrowing economy. Okay. Well, if people want to, uh, if our listeners hear this and want to check out the best of vegan cooking, they would just go to Friends of Animals, your site, or how would they, how can they, do you have, is it in bookstores, what's the deal? Barnes & Noble just put their order in, Amazon finally has an order of cookbooks, and people can get the cookbook directly at friendsofanimals.org. Great. 
All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Priscilla Farrell, for being with us on VegCast. Thanks.
That is a band called Lagoon with their song, The Official Preppy Handbook. Yes, Kate Bush at Wuthering Heights and Utopia did Fahrenheit 451. And, of course, Lionel Richie and Diana Ross did Endless Love. Well, if all of those fine books can be turned into pop songs, then why not the official preppy handbook you can find more of lagoon's music and info about them on their myspace page which is in our show notes at vegcast.com but right now we are going to turn our attention to the science our science fact for vegcast 62 is study gathers best science on heart healthy Foods. This is a report about a study appearing in the Archives of Internal Medicine done by uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, a study that looked at uh, the results of other studies and compiled them into some interesting conclusions. And the lead of this story, uh, this AP story, says, What we know for sure about Diet and what protects the heart is a relatively short list. That's the conclusion of new research based on an analysis of nearly 200 studies involving millions of people. And they go on to mention that the list of good heart foods includes vegetables, nuts, and the Mediterranean diet. And then there's this interesting bit. The question mark list includes meat, eggs, and milk, and many other foods where there's not yet strong evidence about whether they're good or bad for their heart. Well, the funny thing is, with meat, there is strong evidence that it's bad for their heart. In fact, I recollect a previous VegCast, why it was the VegCast we just put out last week that uh, had a study showing definitively that red meat increased the risk of death from all causes. And, of course, they meant all nutrition-related causes, and they specified that that included heart disease. So red meat is very strongly correlated with heart disease. If you don't believe me, you can go to Google and type in red meat heart disease, and you'll find not only that you get a lot of results for it, but Google actually completes the words for you because (laughs) the connection is so strong that uh, people have already used the search term so many times that it knows that that's what you're looking for. Uh, And, of course, this previous study that uh, we mentioned on the last VegCast is only one of many. So that's a little bit disingenuous, uh, calling meat, anyway, a question mark list. And as I said last time, uh, we already have negative studies for meat, eggs, and milk. What we don't have is any positive studies where these foods in isolation have been shown to have uh, any particular protective effect. Uh, The story goes on to explain uh, the criteria for the study. It was developed by Sir Austin Bradford Hill, the late British scientist who helped establish a link between smoking and lung cancer when multiple studies on a certain food or diet showed a strong link with better heart health. That put the food or diet at the top of the list, which is how vegetables and nuts in the Mediterranean diet wound up there. Linda Van Horn, professor of preventive medicine, At Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine said uh, the analysis reaffirms the benefits of a Mediterranean diet rich in vegetables, nuts, whole grains, fish, and olive oil compared to a Western diet heavy on processed meats, red meat, refined grains, and high-fat dairy. Now, it's true that the Western diet is heavy on those 
and uh, especially that it's heavy on high-fat dairy. But the implication, of course, is that um, you'll you'll get better health by uh, switching to low-fat dairy when there are studies that actually show it's not the fat so much in the dairy as the protein, uh, which is going to cause you trouble. And we're still waiting for that study of Mediterranean diet versus Mediterranean diet, one uh, which includes omega-3s from flax and other plant sources uh, versus one that includes fish, since they always uh, harp on the fish in the Mediterranean diet, but we still have not seen whether fish themselves uh, have that heart value. And we happen to know that there are many other uh, problems with fish most notably the contaminants like uh, PCBs, mercury, and dioxin. Um, And the story ends with Van Horn saying it's really about the totality of the usual eating pattern. Great. Uh, That's me saying great. Uh, She continues, rather than whether you ate a hot dog on opening day of baseball season. Um, I find that a little bit humorous. Uh, uh, It was either the last story or the one before where we had the exact same concept that, no, don't worry, you can have a hot dog. But the funny thing is, the totality of uh, Americans' eating patterns is not to eat a diet rich in uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and whole grains and then have a hot dog. It's to eat a diet rich in hot dogs and then maybe one day a year have those, you know, maybe the opening day of baseball or maybe the last day of the season have those fresh fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So let's not kid ourselves. There's nobody out there that says, oh, no, I can't eat a hot dog. Uh, Yeah, health-wise, it's not going to make a difference uh, if you eat a hot dog. Of course, morally, it does make a difference, but we're just talking about the health here. But let's bear in mind uh, that we need to look at the totality of the eating pattern here. And so I I give uh, Ms. Van Horn props for mentioning that at all, but let's keep our eyes open to the fact that uh, you know saying yes, you can have one hot dog is irrelevant to 99% of Americans because we don't eat one hot dog. We eat many, many dozens, hundreds, millions of hot dogs, and those, of course, have already been shown to increase your mortality when eaten in that quantity in a previous edition of Science Fact. Well, it is April 20th when this is coming out. Some of the things I said at the beginning about last week referred to the week before, but I did not get this done on Friday. It will come out today, Monday, uh, and in the course of that uh, span Vegan Review, a new podcast uh, from Philadelphia, a new vegan podcast that I was planning to mention, has uh, opened a dialogue about perhaps uh, using some Green Beings music. So I want to fully disclose that, that we have been talking about that, but that was not why I'm mentioning the podcast. I had already had a note to mention it, and I want everybody to go check out Uh, Vegan Review, they review things uh, from a vegan perspective. It's what you might expect from something called Vegan Review. And here at VegCast, we welcome them to the Philadelphia Vegan Podcast Cabal, or whatever it is or is going to be. That's great. The more podcasts we have and the more ways of getting the message out, the better. And now it's time to get that message out of here. 
62nd podcast. You know, I never made the joke about it being longer than 60 seconds. Now I have less than 60 seconds to wrap it up, so I better get on with it. Thanks to Priscilla Farrell for talking with us on VegCast and for being so patient as we finally got this episode done and out. And thanks also to Lee Hall and Scott Geiger for organizing my attendance at the Sioux Tao event and getting that interview done. Thanks also to Lagoon Band for letting us play their song, The Official Preppy Handbook. And thank you for downloading and or subscribing. Now get out there and live like you mean it. Bad.